tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Episode 22 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. Did you know that February is Women in Horror Month? It is indeed. And we here at the No Sleep Podcast honor women in horror every month. But it's nice to see the way women are being celebrated for their monumental contributions to the horror genre. I'm immensely proud of how our show is impacted by women through our editorial staff, the many, many women who write for us, the women voice actors, and our illustrators, the majority of whom are women. So it seems that when it comes to the dark, creepy, horrifying, and sinister things in this world and the next, we have women to thank for so much of them. And yes, that is very much said in the complimentary. Thank you, ladies. And now it's time to start this week's episode. The stories this week all revolve around the theme of cursed objects. As a former software developer, I like the object-oriented approach. I hope you will as well. And now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet Bill and Shelley. Bill, older brother to Shelley, is a bit of a prankster. And as we learn from author L. Hutchinson, birthdays are the perfect opportunity for gag gifts. But Bill's present to Shelley, an old doll he found at a garage sale, isn't as funny as it is downright creepy. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Kyle Akers, and Mary Murphy. So remember how old objects can trigger long-buried memories. Then you'll understand Shelley when she explains why I can't stand the smell of sagebrush. It was my 19th birthday when I first saw the doll. At the time, I was living at home. I did all right in high school, but aimed a little too high in my college applications and didn't get accepted to any of them. So it was a gap year for me as I prepared for applications when colleges started accepting them again in the fall. My older brother, Bill, was back from college for a couple weeks, and it coincided with my birthday. Bill and I never really got along that well. He's the say-whatever-is-on-your-mind-no-filter kind of person. And I'm a bit more, as my mom would say, sensitive. I prefer thoughtful, but that's not important. My mom threw a little birthday party for me, close family and a few friends. It was nice, except for when she started suggesting that I apply to the same college Bill was going to be a senior at next year, 
so my cool older brother could introduce me to people and help me make friends. Bill and I don't see eye to eye on a lot, but we both agreed that was a terrible idea. After the cake and the sitting there not knowing what to do with yourself while people sing happy birthday to you, came the presents. This was a few years back, so I don't remember everything I got. I really only remember one present, the one Bill got me, the doll. When I unwrapped the gift and I saw the 20-inch doll of the little girl, a weird feeling came over me. There was something really familiar about it that I couldn't immediately place. Oh my God, it looks just like you. Mom was right. Looking at it, it did look just like me when I was a little girl. It was uncanny. You're right. It was like someone had painstakingly crafted a doll of me. Not just superficial things like hairstyle and eye color, but even the shape of my cheeks and mouth. Its clothes even resembled an outfit I vaguely remember wearing at the time. A striped shirt and denim jumper. I could practically see this doll jumping up and down, listening to Skater Boy like I did as a kid. Isn't it great? I saw it and I knew I had to get it. Yeah, it's amazing. I took it further out of the plain cardboard box it was placed in. I noticed it was on a metal stand that gripped it under the armpits so it could be left standing up. Did you get it custom made or something? Nope. I just found it like that. Can you believe it? I had to get it for you. Well, thank you, Bill. I said thanks, but I didn't really feel happy about it. Not that it wasn't a nice gift. It was a shockingly nice gift coming from someone whose go-to present is jack-in-the-box gift cards. There was something just unsettling about it. Not just the fact that it looked so much like me, either. Something else about it just unsettled me. Something that brought me back to the past. After the party guests left that night, I went to my room. I was looking over my college essays or something when I heard a knock at the door, figuring it's just my mom asking if I want another slice of cake before she puts away the leftovers or something. I go open it. Yeah? When I open the door, I find the doll face to face with me. I'm not proud to say that I screamed. And I mean top of my lungs, full terror scream. I think I fell backwards, too. And that's when I heard Bill laughing his ass off as he walks into the doorframe, still holding the doll. (laughs) Bill! What's wrong? It's just a doll. It's a doll that looks like a certain smelly little sister I grew up with. I decided to ignore his needling. I grabbed the doll. Holding it again, I realized something else. There was a smell to it. I couldn't quite place it at the time, but looking back, I think it smelled like sagebrush. I've heard that scent is more strongly tied to memory than any other sense, and this smell was bringing back memories. Bad memories. This doll, it reminds me. Do you remember when I broke my arm as a kid? Yeah, I remember. When you... Bill trailed off after the first letter and looked at me like he was expecting me to finish the word. When I didn't finish his sentence, he did. When you fell down the stairs? I didn't fall. I was pushed. Bill turned his head away from me and groaned in exasperation. 
This was something the family had gone over and over when it happened. They said I fell down the stairs. I remember being pushed. It was a whole thing. Child psychologists got involved. I don't want to go over the details because it was frustrating and tedious as a kid, and it's frustrating and tedious to talk about it now. Eventually, as a kid, I just agreed to say that I fell down the stairs because I got so sick of spending so much time every day listening to adults trying to convince me that I fell down the stairs. But that's not the truth. I was pushed. I was in second grade, I think. I had gotten up in the night to use the bathroom and went downstairs to the kitchen to get some water. I was sleepy and just looking at my feet as I climbed the stairs so I didn't notice until I almost got to the top and looked up. Somebody was standing at the top. It was so dark, I couldn't make out who they were. But it looked like they had something covering their face, like a scarf or a ninja mask. I couldn't tell much else about them besides they were an adult, so much bigger than me. And there was this... this rage. Even in the dark, I could see the fury in their eyes. I stopped, terrified, but they lunged at me. Whoever it was kicked me square in the chest, knocking me back. I was so little, I didn't stand a chance. They sent me tumbling down the stairs. I fell all the way to the bottom and landed weird on my right arm as I went. I could feel a sickening crunch from it. When I landed and tried to get myself up, my arm just bent out from underneath me sending a jolt of pain through me. I screamed in pain and terror. I didn't know what was going on. I was so confused. My mom rushed down and grabbed me. She said I wouldn't stop screaming and thrashing even after she picked me up for over a minute. I don't remember that part. I think my mind just kind of went blank from everything. When all the dust settled, I told my mom someone kicked me down the stairs she couldn't find anyone. I don't know where they went, because my mom ran right past where they had kicked me from. I don't think they could have run down the stairs past me without noticing, but who knows. The police came along with the ambulance and searched the whole house, finding nothing. Just me, my mom, and Bill. The hospital said I snapped both my radius and ulna bones, just before the rest, and had to be in a cast for four months. The weird thing is, there was a strange smell in the air when I saw the figure. I don't think I thought about it at the time because there was so much else going on. But after seeing this doll and smelling the sagebrush scent on it, I realized it was the same. The smell of sagebrush was taking me right back to the past. Right back to being a little girl and getting kicked down the stairs by this shadowy stranger. Bill, I know you don't believe me, but that's what happened. Someone kicked me down the stairs. Nobody was in the house, Shelly. And nobody could have... He waved his hand, like he was waving away this whole topic. You know what? I don't want to argue this with you. What does this even have to do with the doll? The doll just reminds me of it. I think it's the smell. I remember the smell from the night I broke my arm. Bill pulled the doll to his nose and gave it a whiff. Oh, yeah. It smells good. Bill, I'm really sorry, but I hate this thing. Did you save the receipt for it? 
Sorry, Shelly. I got it at a place that won't do returns. Where'd you get it? A garage sale. You got my birthday present at a garage sale? Fucking Bill. Of course he did. He shrugged. So, guess you have to play nice. Or give it to someone else or something. After Bill left, I smelled the doll again. Ugh. I guess it could be a nice smell if it didn't remind me of that night. But all it smelled like to me was pain and fear. I tossed the doll in my closet and went to bed. I decided to just leave the doll in my closet the next day, and I was able to relax a little knowing it would just stay there. But the day after that, when I woke up, I found the doll standing right in front of my bedroom door. Bill! I went downstairs to find him in the kitchen, laughing his ass off between bites of cereal. He must have snuck into my bedroom during the day and grabbed it to put it there overnight. (laughs) What are you freaking out about? It's not fucking funny. What's not funny? I held the doll in his face. You put this outside my door. No, I didn't. (laughs) Bill had zero poker face. He was still laughing. I knew he did it. Well, just don't do it again. Bill did it again. Like five more times, thinking he was so hilarious each time. Every time, he swore up and down that it wasn't him, but it was obvious to me that it was. It got to the point that I would just check my closet before leaving my room. If the doll was gone, I knew Bill had snuck in and got it again. If the doll was there... Well, it still creeped me out. And it felt like every time I opened the closet door, I could smell that scent. It was like a cloud of sagebrush hitting me in the face. I still hated it. I didn't know if it was just my imagination or not, but I could swear the smell was getting worse. And affecting me more, too. Now, my right arm even ached a little when I smelled it. I try not to play this card too often, but eventually I threatened to tell mom. I know, I know. We're both adults and he doesn't live at home anymore, but I'm sure he didn't want to get an earful from her anyways. After that, the doll stayed in my closet for a while. I woke up in the middle of the night a few days later. Just drank too much water before bed, I think. I looked at the clock by my bed and it was 2 a.m., I didn't really want to get out of bed, but I was feeling the call of the toilet by that point, so I rolled out of bed and left my room. The way our house is set up, all the bedrooms are on one hallway of the second floor, along with a bath. I went down the hall to the bathroom. Once I got in the bathroom and turned the light on, it illuminated the bathroom and hallway next to it. That's when I saw the doll, standing there again, facing the bathroom door. I jumped back. Bill! It was all I could do to not yell. It caught me off guard again. Now that I saw the doll, just staring straight ahead with its lifeless, past-me face, the smell hit me again. I really did think it was getting stronger. Ugh! I covered my mouth and nose with the collar of my pajama top. The bathroom could wait. I walked right past the creepy doll and over to Bill's door. 
Open up! Nothing. I turned the doorknob and opened it, turning on his light switch. He wasn't going to just sleep peacefully after doing this to me again. Bill, wake up! But he wasn't there. Just his gross-ass room and a bed with nobody in it. I walked to his window. It overlooks the driveway, and I could see down into it. Mom's car was there. Bill's wasn't. Since coming home, Bill had decided to spend a couple of his nights at dive bars with his high school friends. Tonight must have been one of those nights, I figured. I went back into the hallway, ready to go to the bathroom like I intended. But it was gone. The spot where the doll was, now empty. Just the horrible smell of sagebrush left behind. That doll had already scared me a few times, but it had always been fleeting. A sudden shock and then back to normal. That wasn't happening this time. When I looked at that empty spot, I felt terror. Real terror. My heart started racing. My ears felt hot. I backed away from the bathroom. No, I couldn't back away. I had to look where I was going. I turned away. I had to get back to my room. I quickly walked down the hall, but as I passed the stairs, I noticed a dark figure there. It was dark, but it was the doll. Clear as day, set up like it had been walking up the stairs, on the last step before the top with its arm on the railing. No, not set up. I could see now that the metal stand under its armpits was missing. It was standing on its own. There was enough light coming in through the windows that I could make it out clearly. And then its head turned. I saw its lifeless face turn until it was looking at me. Looking straight at me with that dead, lifeless face and those empty eyes. No! I reacted without thinking. Just fear as I yelled at the doll. I didn't want it coming to me, so I shot my foot out and kicked it, sending it flying straight down the stairs. But after my foot hit it, something happened. I saw it flying back, but for a brief second, it wasn't the doll. It was a real girl. It was me. It was me as a little girl. I could see her body crumple like a real person kicked down the stairs. I could hear her cry out from the impact. Her face was no longer a frozen, empty doll face, but it was full of emotion. I could see her eyes, my eyes, looking at me in shock and confusion before tumbling down the stairs and landing at the bottom with a crack. Oh God! I cried out and ran down the stairs after her. What had I done? I wanted to make sure the girl was okay. But there was no girl at the bottom of the stairs. Just a doll. Just a lifeless, unmoving doll. With a right arm that was completely shattered from the fall. Just before the wrist. Thank you.
Have you heard about this thing called the Internet? Apparently there are these forums and message boards where people can hang out and share common interests. I may have tried checking those out if it weren't for what I learned from author L. Martinez. You see, in this tale, we meet a forum user who delves into a dark world of synth music, rituals, and, uh, God forbid, podcasts. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, and Jeff Clement. So be careful where you go when using the internet. You'll know what I mean when you hear this cautionary tale about the last post of User Echo. This will be my last post. I have been absent for a long time, and by now most of my duties as admin have been taken over by other members of this community. I'm writing this partially out of guilt and partially out of what I feel to be a responsibility to this community. I believe those who have come here seeking help against this truly horrible situation we find ourselves in deserve to know the truth of the events which led to where we are now. The origin story for this group is well documented. I, like all of you, needed to do something, and in desperation I reached out. I was very fortunate to connect online with a few people who were experiencing the same thing, and now we have a network of support that I can honestly say has saved my life. But, and it embarrasses me to admit this, in the three years since I started posting, I have not told anyone my true motivations for creating this space. Ironically, the reasons I have for leaving are the same reasons I had for starting. I once again find myself in need of something new. Something in my life needs to change. Continuing to live as the person I am now terrifies me more than the things we hear on the other sides of our doors. I cannot continue to live in perpetual fear of these voices, especially given what they have taken from me and what I have seen them take from all of us. I hope that my story will explain why I am choosing to leave, and I hope that when you all know the truth as I've lived it, you will forgive me. My brother and I started listening to Echoes, a dungeon synth podcast six months after moving to Chicago. He had moved for a new job as a remote tech at an IT firm, and I, wanting to get out of our native Los Angeles, followed him. I soon learned that there are very good reasons why people do not often move to the other side of the country on a whim. To put it bluntly, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no plan, and the lack of commitment which was so exciting at first lost its luster after about three months of no callbacks for bullshit jobs. At the time we started the podcast, I was making do with the occasional odd job and steady bike courier work. The only thing that really kept me going was that I had started making my own music. My brother, in contrast, seemed to take being away from everyone as he took most things, with a shrug. This story is as much about my brother as it is about myself. In fact, 
I would say it is more about him than it is about me. With him running the podcast, we probably could have made a good listenable show about anything, but Dungeon Synth ended up being a natural crossroads for us. He liked exploring music genres and always had a sense for what was going on in the metal scene. He leaned toward more extreme sounds, often bouncing back and forth between black and death metal. I was a relative noob by comparison who listened to stuff in the doom stoner spectrum, with some prog sprinkled in. Working on the podcast allowed me to see what it was that made Dungeon Synth so exciting for him. I freely admit that it was because of him that I had caught the bug before we recorded the first episode. I even ended up making the intro song to the podcast, as well as an album which I published on Bandcamp later that year. We had recorded and published three episodes before Mr. Stanley showed up. When I met Mr. Stanley, he was sitting at our kitchen table opposite my brother. He looked more like a butler than a lawyer. He was dressed in a classic black suit with a brown, weather-beaten suitcase laying on his lap. There was a destined-to-be-untouched coffee mug on the table in front of him, and I remember seeing his gnarled finger bones clutching the suitcase handle. He gripped it so tightly that there was the faintest tint of pink at the knuckles, the only color on an otherwise maggot-white body. This is E. That's how my brother introduced me to the man who would ruin our lives. He explained quickly that Mr. Stanley had stopped by because we were inheriting something from our great-uncle. We don't have a great-uncle. My brother shrugged. That's what I told him. He says he's sure we do. He emailed me some documents and a family tree. If you'd like, I can send you copies as well. Mr. Stanley's voice was deeper than I expected. It didn't make sense, such a deep voice in so small a frame. But in the meantime, I would like to present you with these instructions. As the meeting of certain deadlines is part of my responsibility to the deceased... Okay. Intrigued by the thought of free money, I took a seat on the couch. Mr. Stanley lifted the case from his lap and set it gently on the table. He drew a key from his suit pocket and opened it. I remember hearing a click and then static before he turned the open suitcase toward us. Inside was what looked like a bird's nest. Jars in various colors along with other strange items were packaged tight. The gaps were filled with thin strips of cardboard colored paper. Envelopes were lined along the sides. In the center, a cassette player emitted the sound of static for an uncomfortable stretch of time. A weak, raspy voice faded in as if it was coming from far away.
I cannot be held responsible for any consequences that may arise if you were to deviate from my instructions. The voice, which I assumed was our great uncle, assured us that if these acts were completed, then we would be entitled to his property and what was left of his wealth. As if rehearsed, Mr. Stanley produced photos of the property and printouts of our great uncle's holdings. While the money amounted to several years' worth of rent, my brother was more interested in the property. Since our parents had both died early, we did not have much in terms of a safety net. I could see my brother doing the calculations in his head. The amount of money and time he could save by inheriting this property was more than tempting. At the age of 26, nothing appears farther and more distant than owning a home. And at the same time, nothing feels like a surer sign of security. Our great-uncle's voice, as if it could sense the greed in the room, spoke again. If you agree to my terms, please say so verbally now. My associate will act as witness to the contract. Deal. My brother spoke without looking up from the photo of the house, then turned towards me. Seeing the familiar look of obsession in my brother's face, I said yes as well, despite my questions. He always seemed to know what he was doing. I was sure he would explain away any concerns I had. After we both agreed, Mr. Stanley had us sign a few papers. No words were exchanged. He simply provided a pen and pointed to where we needed to sign. When we finished, my brother looked up at him. This is everything? Everything at the moment. Do you know what's on the tapes? All I know is that he left specific instructions for each task. The envelopes are dated with the date of the ritual, and the instructions may be opened before the date inscribed. How will you know if we complete the tasks? I will contact you in twelve months' time to finalize the process for inheritance. I will know if you have not completed the tasks. With a quick nod, he rose out of his seat and left. We did not see him again. I remember looking into my brother's face and hoping to see at least a portion of the reservation I felt in my chest, but he was already examining our great-uncle's suitcase that Mr. Stanley had left. I peeked through the blinds to see if I could spot Mr. Stanley making his way to a car, but I didn't see him. When I faced my brother again, he was holding a tape. This one is marked for tomorrow. We both took the next day off. My brother wanted to make sure everything was perfect for that night. Not only did he want to have the ritual memorized, but he also wanted to make sure we could record the ritual for the podcast. The instructions required us to record the process, but nowhere did it state that we had to keep the recording a secret. So my brother decided to put it up on the podcast. He wanted it to be a segment that we would do regularly. The rest of the envelopes seemed to be dated at regular intervals, about a month apart from each other, so this was doable. While he worked on getting all of the materials and our apartment ready, 
I did all of the recording setup and scripting for the show. Everything we needed for the ritual was included in the suitcase. The materials, a set of typed out instructions, along with a cassette which was to be played in the background. The music, strangely enough, was like proto-dungeon synth. Judging by the state of the cassette cases, the tapes all looked to have been created back in the 80s, before dungeon synth took off as a genre. Was our uncle some unknown pioneer? How could he have known we were fans? Even more strange were the experimental moments in the songs. Small portions of the tape where the sound lost any pattern or tonal familiarity and branched off into something unsettling. It would almost make you nauseous if you listened too many times back to back. We couldn't figure out how our uncle had achieved the sounds we were hearing. This guy must have made his own synth. Why do you say that? These types of sounds he was getting were just not available at the time. People nowadays have hundreds of mods and oscillators they can tweak to get any sound they want. Back then, the range was limited. So he either created his own equipment for this purpose, or he was very good at creating tapes that look old, but are actually new. We didn't talk about the age of the tapes again. My brother was too busy listening to music on repeat throughout the day. Queasiness be damned. I will not repeat the instructions for the ritual here, and do not bother PMing me. We didn't realize it at the time, but since then I have done research of my own, and I see now that one misstep could have ended things for the both of us. Sometimes I wish we had been less careful, that way we might have just been killed and maybe this channel wouldn't have to exist. Also, if I'm being honest, if you're reading this you've already heard the instructions. You may have even found yourself acting them out while you sleep. Or maybe you've woken to the sound of your sleepwalking body gathering supplies. If you really want to know how we did it, you just have to listen. The voices will tell you what to do. Just check out that rattle at the window or answer that knock at your bedroom door. You've seen the other posts. You know what will happen. Now, having witnessed the ritual in its entirety, it seems to me that the first night served as a foundational action, similar to a theme in music or a thesis in a paper. It was a short bit of ritual that was meant to display our intent. We didn't actually know what we were saying with our actions since the rituals were based on a logic to which we had no exposure. There were strange symbols that we were instructed to etch around us, and the foreign words in the instructions were written phonetically. That first night, we just set the stage. We aired the recording of the ritual in our next podcast episode. As a reward, our listening numbers went way up. Our credibility, which had been dubious at first, was now guaranteed. Most of the feedback we got was encouraging. Others thought we were butchering the old ways, mocking some new age knockoff religion, or they said we were making fun of the true craft of magic. We laughed it off. At the time, we figured doing a spell from a dead uncle's suitcase was about as authentic as you could get. This continued for the next few months. We would open up a new envelope and prepare for the date of the ritual. We would perform, record, and then listen to the podcast. 
Each time, the instructions were accompanied by a new tape, with new music which built upon itself. A melody here, a new movement there. Over time, we also got used to the strange sounds that we now played throughout the day. During this time, my brother also began researching our uncle, but even he had trouble finding anything concrete. His obituary was the easiest thing to find. It mentioned that he had enjoyed collecting musical instruments and had been a big influencer in the early days of the Chicago synth scene. There wasn't much more, and the little that did exist had nothing to do with music. We asked around in our dungeon synth forums, other black metal groups, and synth channels, but no one had heard of him. After all the dead ends, my brother eventually gave up trying to find more. He just sat alone in his room, listening to the samples that had been provided to us. Sometimes I would walk in and find him with his forehead furrowed, an angry look on his face, shaking his head and replaying a specific section of the tape. I think it worried him that such a person could have existed and then just disappeared with no trace. During our sixth session was when we first heard the voices. By that time, we had perfected our setup. I operated the mic, which stood outside of the salt circle. It recorded the sounds of the ritual and our uncle's music, along with my brother's vocals. My brother would speak and chant into another mic within the circle for a cleaner take. Both mics would record at the same time. This way, we could get two separate recordings for the noises that were involved in the ritual. Chants mostly, but it also called for the banging of a drum with what appeared to be a femur of some animal, all included in the suitcase. My brother sat in the middle of the circle he created, chanting and sweating. Each strike of the femur seemed to send a ripple through the salt outline around him. About halfway through the tape, we heard the voices. They swelled filling our little apartment until the square edges of the room felt like they had begun to round out. It was like our living room was inhaling a deep breath. Things were stretched to their limits, as if pushed out by those strange sounds. Neither of us remembered finishing the ritual. I woke up later than my brother, much later than I was used to, and found him sitting in our living room, listening back to the raw audio from the night before. We already know the dude was a genius. He essentially predated an entire genre 15 years before it showed up. But how did he get those sounds? Those aren't synths. Field recordings, maybe. Run through some kind of effects device he made himself. I wouldn't put it past him. I just hope we can get those voices to show up on our recording. I don't know. It doesn't really go with our show. Our show? We did some real shit here. That was magic. What we're doing is beyond dungeon synth. This is a new kind of music. A new science. But it's just a special effect, right? Nah, man. No way. We're doing something here. This is real power. You're serious about this? He didn't answer. He put his headphones back on, and I went back to my room. A week after our ninth session, I tried to quit. I was sitting in my room working on a track for my new album when I heard a voice. 
At first, I thought it was part of the track. Maybe I had added a bit of creepy vocals late one night and I forgot I had thrown it in. It wasn't uncommon for me to surprise myself like that. But when I paused the recording, the voice persisted. A thrumming, yowling speech seemed to be coming from the hallway that led to my door. I remember feeling the warmth of my body drain from my arms and legs. It seemed as though my blood was pooling into a heavy ball in my stomach. While the sound of the voice was disturbing, the words were worse. It was like an animal trying to learn English. Like when an owner of a pet tries to teach them human words. It sounded wrong. But that description isn't quite right. It didn't sound like a bad imitation. It felt more like I was listening to something try to learn deception. Like hearing a child tell their first lie. I grabbed a pen from my desk drawer and walked over to the door of my room. I heard what sounded like someone trying to break down my door. But the door didn't rattle or shake. I was reaching for the knob when it opened on its own. I lunged, not knowing what I would see in that hallway. My brother jumped back, and the pen I tried to stab him with left a long streak across the hallway wall. I'm sorry. Come near this. He walked into my room and sat on my bed, opening his laptop. I've recorded my own stuff over his voice, using bits that I took from the recordings we played during our sessions. What do you think? It took me a moment, shocked that he didn't ask at all about me trying to kill him a few moments ago. Did you not hear those voices? You can hear them too? Yeah, I thought something was going... My brother's face lit up. Finally! They told me you wouldn't understand, but I knew you would come too eventually. They said that I was the only one who could hear them. But now that you can, we can begin for real. What do you mean? I was talking about the one I heard just now before I almost stabbed you. What are these other voices? I can't say exactly how his face changed after that, but it did. Some of you with siblings might know what I'm talking about. But somehow, I knew the next thing he said was going to be a lie. Oh, yeah, that one. I made it with a new oscillator I bought. That's bullshit. We need to stop this. I, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. What? All this shit is so fucked up. We're dealing with... I, I don't know what it is. No. Don't worry about it. But he wasn't looking at me. I moved closer to him and waved my hand in front of his face. He stared back through me. We need to do this together. What's wrong with you? I reached out to grab him by the shoulder. Before I could, he turned away from me. Hey, I've got to finish this track. I'll talk to you tomorrow. He put his headphones on and began typing on his laptop. I stood for a moment, watching him. He picked up his computer and headed into his room. I followed him until his door slammed in my face. I pushed my ear to it. And I heard his voice. It'll be fine. I've got it under control. 
Now I wish I had tried harder. I wish I had shaken him. I wish I had grabbed something and hit him with it. Maybe the pain would have taken him out of the trance he was trapped in. I didn't try, though. I simply gave in. I figured a few more sessions and we would be richer and we would have a regular place to stay. I could quit my bullshit jobs and really focus on music. So we kept doing it until we came up on the last session. If you are listening to this, I was right in my choice of successor. The last ritual will be special. Enclosed, you'll find an additional set of instructions, as well as directions to my former and your future property. These words were on an extra tape contained in the envelope along with the guidelines for our last ritual. While it played, my brother took notes on the back page of a book that had been left on the counter. At this point, his frantic scribbling didn't surprise me. I was resigned to our task. I took a deep breath and pushed back the dread that sat heavy in my chest. Most people think Chicago is right in the middle of Illinois, but it's actually pretty far north. We had to drive through a lot of nothing to get to the southern tip where the house was located. As we got closer, the landscape went from big and empty to sprinkled with trees, the patches of woods growing in frequency until we were surrounded on both sides of the road. The setting sun reached out through vertical bars the tree trunks made against the light. I didn't notice the speed we were traveling until we hit a bump and my seatbelt attempted to strangle me. It was getting dark when we turned off the main road onto the dirt path into the woods. The house came upon us after an abrupt curve, so fast that we skidded on the dirt, sending small rocks flying into the front window and porch. My brother left the motor running when he got out. I called him an idiot, turned off the ignition, and followed him. There was no menace about the house, nothing that made it stand out to me. Compared to the woods that surrounded it, I remember thinking that if the windows were lit, it could be inviting, like a grandmother's home. But there were no lit windows, and without any sign of life, the house looked like what it was, empty and abandoned. My first breath inside smelled like stale dirt. My brother had already made his way to the large circular room that took up most of the interior. A kitchen stood off to the left side of that large center room, and to the right there was a hallway that led into the bedrooms, garage, and basement. In the main circular room were two half-circles of synths. They were large 1970s-looking computers, which at the time of purchase must have cost hundreds if not thousands of dollars. They encircled us, acting as a ring with two openings. The first faced the entrance we had walked through, and the second faced a floor-to-ceiling glass sliding door. I remember squinting to see in the little bit of twilight that made it through the dirty panes. It was a mini Stonehenge, laced with cobwebs and wires. The special instructions for this ritual came with a diagram. It looked more like a network map rather than anything musical, but my brother made quick work of it, having done a lot of server closets for clients in the past. 
Even so, he spent the remaining time until midnight muttering to himself and double-checking his work against the instructions and his notes. I spent the time looking for usable outlets and testing the microphones. To my surprise, the lights, outlets, and even the toilets worked. At around 11pm, I broke out the sandwiches I had packed for us, and we sat in the kitchen, waiting for midnight. My brother was muttering to himself, giggle fits interrupting his stream of consciousness. I felt an overwhelming sense of pity rather than fear for this person who had been my closest friend just a few months before. I left him there and went into the bathroom and cried. Shaking with dread and sadness, I knew in that moment that our lives would never be the same. Even if we owned the house and inherited the money, I would have to get him some kind of help. I made a promise to do so as soon as we got back to Chicago. I took a deep breath and went back out. He was waiting with a smile. You ready? The setup for this session was similar to the ones before it, only more intricate. We used three circles instead of one, candles, different chants, and blood. There was a working clock in the room, and my brother started with his drum, in time with the first chime, at midnight. His chants began after the twelfth toll. I stood on the outside of the circle of synths, Mike directed toward him with my headphones on. First came the smell of ozone, or at least that's what I think it smells like. It was chemical, and after a moment a burnt taste seeped into my mouth. Humidity like hot breath of some carrion eater from under the floorboards. The music from the tape started. After the first verse, my brother's voice started to strain. The synths that surrounded us began to wobble, moving back and forth beyond the salt circles. Lightning flashed outside even though I hadn't seen any sign of rain before then. I alternated between keeping my headphones on and then taking them off. Hearing the music without the headphones felt like something was grating my brain, but when I kept them on, the combination of sounds transformed into something I could not understand. That was the first time I truly heard them. Their wailing, horrible subhuman speech through the headphones. The pitches and vibrations of the voices made me nauseous, and I threw up moments after they began. I convulsed until I managed to slap the headphones off. After I recovered from the wails, I looked up and saw it. A long, human-shaped shadow. It grabbed my brother, who was yelling, tears streaming down his face. You can hear them, can't you? You can hear them now. I was crying now, too, because I could hear them. I saw them, too. They were not human at all, instead resembling small, greedy mouths with thick appendages, too long with too many swollen knuckle bone joints. They were the color of charcoal, a dry gray which felt so distant and cold that I swore it seemed to suck the color out of what they touched. I looked back at my brother. He was crying in the thick, stubby arms of the creature at the center. It was different than the bodies where the voices came from. Both the arms and the naked body of this creature were covered in small, spindly needles, 
like the hair on a spider's legs. My brother cried in those twisted arms, snot coming out of his nose like a child. I remember I could somehow feel the muscular forked tongue emerge from its mouth. Before now, I have only remembered this scene in pieces, never allowing myself to visualize the creature in totality. When I revisit this memory, the voices become stronger. As I am writing this, my windows have begun to rattle, and my doorknob sounds like it will twist out of its place. But I am holding fast to the memory, as clearly as if it were yesterday. I see my brother looking up at the thing with love in his eyes, as the creature's serpent tongue licks the tears from his cheek. I do not know how long they were entwined, but eventually the creature dropped my brother. He tried to get up like a toddler after a stumble. The creature focused on me. Its eyes were clouded sky irises encircled by jaundice yellow. A flat face with a nose so long it was almost cartoonish. Its teeth were not teeth at all, but twin brushes of tarnished ivory needles. I saw the forked tongue burst forth once again like a catapult. It sent spit flying toward the edge of the circle. The salt splashed outward like someone had flicked at it with a tiny broom. The creature turned back toward me and spoke. Then, cackling with a mouthful of shrapnel, it crossed the border's edge and faded out into nothingness. The limbed mouths crowded the air, appearing to cover the thing's exit. They began to shift closer toward me. In terror, I lunged for the nearest synth, pulling it down by the wires that connected it to the others. The rest of the synths followed it to the floor, sending sparks and wires whipping out into the room. They fell with loud drones, followed by feedback and screams which were so powerful, they made my vision go blurry for a moment. I used the wall to steady myself and ran for the front door. The last thing I remember seeing was my brother still in the circle, eyes bulging and tongue lolled out onto the dusty floor. That leaves us here. I didn't air that last episode, but it didn't matter. Our previous recordings were enough to get other people hearing them. And even after I took them down, there were enough downloads that they keep spreading. People are trying their own rituals, trying to piece together what my brother and I recorded over the course of that year. I feel responsible for those deaths, as I do for the suffering of you all. I haven't seen my brother since that night. I don't know if I would be able to face him now if he showed up at my door. I know he won't. I know where he is. He is where I left him with only the clawing noises of the two long fingers around him. The same noises that surround me 
the sounds of those trying desperately to break in. I hear them scratching at night, the clawing at the walls, and the knocks on doors and windows. I hear the creak of opening entryways and footsteps going beyond me into empty rooms long after I've stopped walking. This will be my last post. I am going back to that house to see my brother. It was because of my cowardice that he is still there. I may not have had the courage to free him, but one way or another, I will rid myself of these incessant voices. When dealing with grief, some people feel drawn to thoughts of life after death and those things in the supernatural realm. Like Melanie, who we meet in this tale by author Rona Vassilar. Following the death of her grandmother, Melanie finds an occult book. One she simply can't resist bringing home and trying. Performing this tale is Nicole Goodnight. So perhaps it's better to accept the finality of death It's better than the answer you might get when you call out, Can you hear me? Hello? Can anyone hear me? If you can, please say something, anything at all. I can't hear you. I can't tell if it's because you don't exist and nobody is listening to this, or it's just that I can't hear the voices of the living anymore. In case anyone is listening, my name is Melanie Levent. I'm from Luverne, Minnesota, and on July 6th, I disappeared. I'm not sure how long it's been since then. It can't have been very long, maybe a a few weeks. My mom is Eleanor Levent. She's a librarian in town. My dad is Thomas Levent, and he's an English teacher at the local high school. I have a little brother named Evan. He's 10. I'm 15. Are you still there? Whoever you are, I hope so, please. God, let someone be there. I screwed up. About a year ago, I got really interested in the supernatural. My grandma, Granny Mag, passed away. She and I were really close, and I missed her so much, and... I just wanted to talk to her again. So I started reading about ghosts and the afterlife and seances and spirit boards. I read every book in the library on the occult. I had to steal them and read them in secret because my mom would never have allowed me to read them. She has no idea I've been doing this. Nobody does. That's why they can't possibly know what happened to me. I tried everything I read about. I made my own Ouija board and tried to talk to Granny's spirit. I... I tried to hold a one-person seance, which didn't work at all. I even tried automatic writing. Nothing was working. But then I found this book. It was in the giveaway pile. The library has this book sale every year to get rid of old books. 
Books that are damaged go into the giveaway pile. They're free, and anything that isn't taken gets thrown away. I was helping Mom with the book sale, and during a slow moment was going through the pile when I saw a small black book with a pentagram embossed on the cover. The title page simply read, The Occult. There was no author listed or publication date or or anything. I hadn't read that book yet, and and wasn't sure where it had come from, so I slipped it into my bag and, and resolved to read it later. That night, I paged through the book and found something new. It was a method not just of contacting the dead, but of crossing the boundary separating life and death. The book said that, contrary to popular belief, there is no veil between our worlds. Instead, there's a sort of gray space between the lands of the living and the dead. The dead can easily cross into this space, but for the living, it's more difficult on account of our corporeal bodies. The book said that it was possible to open a door into the gray space, but it had to be done very carefully, and one had to use protection. There were a lot of steps, but I was so careful to do them all correctly. Right now I can't remember all of them or what order they were in. But I remember I had to get dirt from a graveyard, a witch's stone, wood from a rowan tree, and some other things, I I think. I was to carry a stick made of wood from an ash tree for protection. I had to place the items in a pentagram, one at each of the points. I had to chant this verse in a language I didn't know, and then draw a door on my wall with a piece of blue chalk. It worked! That's the craziest thing! It worked! I walked through the doorway and I started calling for my granny. I walked around for hours, but I couldn't find her. The gray space looks different than I imagined. I I mean, I literally thought it would be just this empty grayness all around me. But it isn't. It's almost like a large forest, except instead of trees, there are shadows. They look like they're physical things, like I could reach out and touch them. Eventually, I decided to go back through the doorway. Except that when I walked back the way I came, at least back the way I think I came, it was gone. Like it it had never existed in the first place. I still had the chalk. I tried to draw another door, but it didn't work. I was stuck there. I'm still stuck here. I've noticed a couple things since getting here. Some of the shadows can move. They almost look like people. I think maybe those are the souls of the dead. I've tried talking to them, but they give no indication that they can hear me. Kind of like you, I guess. I tried to touch one once. I felt this horrible sensation like all my life was being drained out of my fingertips, like my heartbeat was being dragged to a halt. There was a heavy pressure on my chest and I couldn't get a deep breath. It was like drowning without water. I haven't tried to touch them again, but now the shadows seem interested in me. They don't try to touch me or talk to me, but they follow me around. And every day it seems like there are more of them. I'm not dead, I know that much. My heart is still beating. I can still feel pain and hunger and exhaustion. But there's nothing to eat, and I can't sleep. I physically can't sleep. But no matter how hungry or tired I get, I don't die. I don't think I can die in here. Sometimes I can hear things from the land of the living. I can hear snatches of songs and whispers. It's taken me some time to understand, but I think what I'm hearing is the radio. I can't be certain, but it's almost like radio waves can travel through all planes of existence. 
I found one spot in the gray space where the sounds are the loudest, the most distinct. I can't really understand what people are talking about most of the time. Places and people I've never seen or heard of, but at this point, I'll try anything. If you can hear me, it means I was right, and that maybe there's a chance that I can make it out of here. Please find my parents. Tell them I'm still alive and that they need to use the book to get me out. I hid it under my mattress. Tell them I'm waiting for them. Just in case you forgot, my name is Melanie Levent. I'm from Laverne, Minnesota, and I'm 15 years old. And a few weeks ago, I went missing on July 6th, 1978. When a young child goes missing, the police will do anything and everything to find and return the child to the parents. It's no different when Victoria goes missing. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author David Axelson, the police discover Victoria's journal, and there are clues indicating that her disappearance may be more mysterious than first thought. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell and Erica Sanderson. So don't expect to get help from Aslan when you hear the tale of The Girl, The Police, and The Wardrobe. First off, I am risking my job by telling you this, but I feel like I have to. I would appreciate it if he did not share this story with anyone involved with solving missing person cases. Someone with those resources would be able to identify this case and perhaps me. Hell, don't share it with anyone. I'm a police officer in a city of 200,000. I work with missing persons myself. It's mostly runaway teens and custody kidnappings where a divorced parent skips town with a kid without the other parent's consent. But this case was like no other. A ten-year-old girl, we'll call her Victoria, had vanished in the middle of suburbia. It was one of those cases the media go crazy for. A cute, blonde, well-behaved girl gone missing, possibly kidnapped, or worse. We must have searched the parents' house half a dozen times. The chief was riding us hard, probably feeling the heat from having reporters banging on the station doors all day. After two weeks of interrogations and double shifts, I felt I knew more about Victoria than I do about my own daughters. I had asked the parents on the very first day of the investigation if Victoria had kept a diary. I know I asked, because I always do when kids go missing. People tend to underestimate a child's inner monologue. We often idealize our childhoods, forgetting about all the big questions that plagued us then. Questions that adults do not know the answer to but are better at ignoring. The mother said, no, Victoria didn't keep a diary. She liked other books, though. Loved them. She was practically obsessed with reading, the father told me with a defeated smile. We were three weeks into the investigation when I found it, Victoria's secret diary. 
We had cleared out her room in the first week, including all the books in her bookcase. But no one had bothered to look inside the books themselves. There it was, in between the lines of a well-spaced edition of The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe, the first of the Narnia books. Once I started reading, I understood that the title wasn't chosen at random. I quickly gathered that this was no ordinary child's diary. The first page, scribbled on the back of the table of contents, was titled Mission Log. It read, I have found something which should not exist. I knew there was something wrong with it. That smelly old closet. I knew at the moment Mum brought it home from the flea market. I said, no, I do not want that thing in my room. Knowing Mum, I even said the one thing I was sure that she would understand. It's ugly and it stinks. Didn't work. She probably thought that I was just being fussy and that I would get used to the thing in a week or two. Not true. There's something wrong with my closet and this is my logbook. The next page was written spiralled around the margins of the first chapter. It read, Jan 21st, one month before the disappearance. I first found it by chance yesterday. I was looking for a book, this book in fact, to bring to Mia's cottage this weekend. Can you believe it? She's never read Narnia. Anyway, I was going through the closet, sweeping with my hand behind all of the hangers. There was a lot of junk there, but I had a feeling that the books should be somewhere in the back. I felt against the wall, grabbing everything that wasn't soft and pulling it out for inspection. There was the wooden doll my grandmother gave me but never liked, some boxes of Lego, a robot with light-up eyes. Then I hit something that felt like a skateboard, or a wooden plank of some kind. I had no idea what it was, so I tugged on it. It gave a little, with a loud crack that scared me half to death. It was part of the closet. I panicked. Mum could never know that I'd ruined her precious closet. She would definitely think I'd done it on purpose. I quickly cleared out all of the clothes and junk to inspect the damage. It was worse than I thought. A large section of the closet's back wall had come loose. I could push it flat and keep it there with my hand, but as soon as I let go, it sprung up again. I was thinking of a plan. Maybe I could tape it flat and it would hold. And I felt a cold breeze and I turned round to check my window. Closed. The door, too. The air was coming from the closet. I put my hand on the loose wall section. The flow of air stopped. I let go. There it was again. There must be something behind the closet, I thought. So I crawled in to get a better look. I brought my torch with me. Mia has a smartphone with the torch built in but I'm stuck with some old thing with numbered buttons that my dad gave me. Anyway, I shone my torch in the gap behind the loose wall, expecting to see my striped wallpaper. But there was nothing but black. I was pretty scared by now, I must admit. But I was also curious. Some part of me was probably hoping for a real-life Narnia adventure. So I stuck my hand into the hole. I reached in and felt nothing. I put my whole hand into the hole, then my forearm, then the rest of my arm. Then suddenly I felt it. A wall. It felt like the same wood as the closet walls, but it kept going inward. Into my bedroom wall. But how far? I gently pried open the wall gap until it was big enough for me to put my head through. I managed to get the torch in there with me. When it lit up, I was instantly disappointed. There was no passage to Narnia, or any other magical land for that matter. It was just a box. Pretty big, but still just a box. I think that I would probably fit in there if I tried. I didn't, though. 
I've given it all some thought since yesterday, and I felt like I had to write it all down. It's so strange. It is just a box, but how does it fit behind my closet? If the closet had a secret compartment that big, then surely you wouldn't be able to place it flat against the wall. We'll investigate soon. Bye for now. 25th of January. Spent the weekend at Mia's cottage. It was nice. We played games and ate ice cream. I told her about the secret space in my closet. She didn't believe me, thought that I was just trying to sell her on my Narnia books. I know she thinks I'm a dork, but I don't care. She's nice to me. I will probably not tell her any more about the closet, though. When I got home, I tried moving the closet to look at it from the back. I have to see if there's a box back there. It's driving me crazy. Too bad I couldn't move it. I'm pretty strong, but still. Thinking about asking Dad, but I'm not sure that I want him to know about it yet. It's my secret, unless Mia tells someone. But I don't think she will. She pinky promised that she wouldn't. 26th of January. I climbed inside today. I thought that I would be afraid or feel closet-phobic somehow, but I didn't. The box is just big enough for me to sit in, but the walls are pretty high, almost as high as the closet. I can stand up straight without hitting my head, but I prefer sitting. I have decided that I am not going to tell Mum or Dad. I like the idea of having a secret hiding spot. There's probably nothing magic about it anyway. It's just a secret compartment in my closet that fools the eye when viewed from the outside. I could make something out of the box, make it feel cosy. Right now it's cold, very cold. 1st of February. I love my secret box. Just spent two hours in there reading Molly Moon with my little clip-on reading light. The cold was no problem. I put a blanket in the bottom of the box and put on my dad's old jumper. It's huge. I made sure to hold the broken panel open with my foot. It would be very scary to let it close behind me. I'm afraid that I won't find my way out again. Stupid thought, I know. I can touch all four walls at the same time when sitting down, so it'd be quite the achievement to get lost in there. 10th of February. Mum gave me her old camping light. I said that I was going to use it in Mia's treehouse. Mia doesn't have a treehouse. While Mum was at work, I borrowed a hammer from her toolbox. She has so many cool things in her toolbox, but I'm not allowed to use them when she's not with me. And I put a nail up at the top of the box by the ceiling, if you can call it that. Now I have blanket, books and a ceiling lamp. I'm no longer scared of closing the panel. The box is much better than my room now. 12th of February. My parents hosted some stupid dinner party tonight. Jane and Morton and their kids. I like Jane. She's really nice and tells me that I'm good at football, which is so much better than when Dad says it, because Jane is, like, really, really good at football herself. Morton is nice too. But they're kids. I hate them so much. Caden and Annie. They always scream and fight with each other. Last time they were here, they ruined my doll's house by slamming the doors too hard. Mum obviously hates them too, because she sent them to my room to get rid of them. Oh, you're the same age. Oh, you both like football. Yeah, right. I think they were pretty surprised when they came into my room and couldn't find me. I heard them talking about me. Talking about my books. Mmm, booming. Fighting over who gets to steal my iPad. Still, I preferred it to actually having to talk to them. Oh, I was in the box. I forgot to write that. I'd even closed the doors to the closet from the inside so that they wouldn't investigate. They left after a few minutes. 
probably missing someone to pester. Thank you, Box. The 18th of February. I spent another afternoon reading in the box. I do it almost every day now, so that by itself is barely mission log material nowadays. I'm writing because something odd happens today. After about an hour of reading, I needed the toilet. But when I pushed on the broken panel as usual, it wouldn't budge. I had my camping light on, so I know I was pushing in the right place. I used my legs and my whole body weight to try and get it open, but it was completely stuck. It even looked like solid wall. I pushed once, nothing. Twice, nothing. Three times, and then it just opened. I didn't even have to push hard the last time. I got out and went to the bathroom. I was hesitant of getting back in there at first, but I did after a while. I kept my foot in the panel opening after that. I think I will bring my emergency phone with me the next time, just in case. That is the last entry in Victoria's mission log. It's dated three days before her parents reported her missing. We searched the closet, obviously. It had already been emptied out and searched once before, but I wanted to do it myself this time. I searched every nook and cranny of that old splintery thing. It was completely empty. I became obsessed with trying to find the broken panel that Victoria wrote of, but I couldn't find as much as a crack in the solid wood walls. I remember thinking, this isn't over. It took three police officers to move the closet down to the station. There, my colleagues and I used my personal collection of power tools to hack that thing to pieces. There was no box, no secret compartment, no nothing. I had to write off Victoria's mission log as a child's fantasy. It was the only logical conclusion. But every bone in my body told me that there was something more to this. Why would a child write so detailed about something as boring as a wooden box if it weren't true? We did find Victoria, just a couple of days after I thrashed that closet. I'm sad to say that she was found dead. It's always heartbreaking when a child is found dead, but this time I felt a more sincere connection to the victim. I felt like I knew her, and the circumstances around her death will forever haunt me. You will soon understand why. I would like to say that it was Victoria's mission log that helped us find her, but that is unfortunately not true. However, the logbook still played a role in all this which is why I have kept pictures of the pages in my phone. That, and to prove to myself that I'm not crazy. The key to finding Vic was good old-fashioned cellular triangulation. Victoria had written a text message to her mother just hours after her last known sighting, but the weak GSM signal hadn't got through. The old Nokia phone her dad had given her for emergencies had kept trying to resend the same message every few hours during the last weeks, without much success. Then, for some reason, it worked. And on that one day, Victoria's mother received a message from beyond the grave. She called the station just minutes later, and I went over to the house on two wheels. I will never forget the look on her face when her trembling hand gave me the phone. That bewildered look of complete disbelief. The message read, Help, Mum. Trapped in closet in my room. Come now. My heart sank when I read it. This was no joke. She was in the closet, or at least had been. 
I consoled Victoria's mother for several hours, frustrated that I couldn't give her any answers. Then I went home for some much-needed rest. When I got in the next morning, the tech team had done their thing and located the source of the signal. The whole station was going to the site. I had barely woken up, but was handed a shovel and told to get into the back seat of a police car. When we arrived at the site after just five minutes, I almost laughed in morbid disbelief. It was a cemetery. Little Victoria had been at the cemetery this whole time. Some sick freak had put her there, we figured. We had dogs and thermal cameras scan every inch of that cemetery. Two hours later, we found something. One of the tombstones gave us a heat signature. I cleared the stone to rule out that this was a fresh burial that might give off some heat from compostation. No, the grave was over a hundred years old and belonged to a woman named Camilla Carpenter. I read the dates on the stone and did the maths. Camilla hadn't died a woman. She had died when she was a ten-year-old girl. That sent a shiver down my spine. The dig took over two days. Two local undertakers were recruited as helpers, since they knew the cemetery and the craft. In the dusky light of the end of the second day, we finally got to the casket. One of the undertakers got the crane that usually moves caskets in the opposite direction. He jumped into the grave and attached the harness. It's tricky, he said, when the caskets are this small. I thought that I was going to be sick right then. It was an old, mold-covered thing that came up from that grave. I was starting to doubt if this really could be related to Victoria. The casket looked like it had been untouched for decades. But... It was too late to protest. The undertaker was already at work with his crowbar. When the lid cracked open, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was Victoria. She was generally well-preserved, but still hard to look at. The skin color is always the worst for me. My colleague and I put on our gloves, and together we moved the body to a body bag. Later, the coroner would say that her remains had probably been buried around the same time as the parents called the case in. We never had a chance. Cause of death, asphyxiation. When we had moved the bag into our car, I thought that the most traumatic part was over. But then I looked inside the casket where Victoria had been resting. In the bottom lay a small piece of cloth and what looked like a lamp of some kind. I bagged up the items. Then I got this weird instinct. I held the casket up towards the setting sun. It felt so natural in that moment. A large crack lit up. It ran almost the entire length of the casket. I gently pushed the backplate and the wood whined and popped as it gave. The crack formed a narrow mouth. I could see my colleague through it, looking at me like I was crazy. I pushed as hard as I dared and sized up the hole with my eyes. Without really thinking, I compared it to the body that I had just bagged up. That sinking realization. I threw the casket to the side and fell to my knees. It would fit. It definitely would. She would fit. I had found Victoria's secret box. 
In our final tale, we experience art. Beauty, they say, is in the eye of the beholder. And art, especially visual art like painting, is entirely subjective. What's beautiful to one person might be hideous to another. And in this tale from author Tad Meekum, we meet a wealthy couple who have just purchased a new painting. A painting which causes each person who views it to see something different and utterly horrible. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Mick Wingert, Mary Murphy, Graham Rowett, Sarah Thomas, Peter Lewis, Alexandra Cruz Hernandez, Jeff Clement, Kyle Akers, and Atticus Jackson. So if you see a painting that fills you with revulsion, you'd best avoid it at all costs. Otherwise, it might soon be yours. The thing was horribly large, much too big for the sitting room, where Franklin had informed me it would hang, and I advised the movers as much as they shuffled through the foyer. You got a different room in mind, ma'am? Yeah, this isn't exactly light. Go on. (sighs) I sighed, waving them away and bringing my cell to my ear. Franklin picked up on the first ring. Did it arrive? Yes, it has. The movers... Have you seen it? It's wrapped up. (laughs) And far too big. (laughs) Well, yes. If I had told you its actual size, you would have kept me from buying it. I would have. It would have just headed straight to the basement instead of the little detour it's taking into the sitting room. He was silent a moment before a more serious tone arose. You didn't really put it away in storage, did you? (sighs) Of course not. But behind the baby grand isn't large enough. We're going to have to rearrange. Bluebells can come down. That was a gift from my grandmother. Not some mysterious painting bought at auction. And we can put it in the dining room. You've been saying for months how badly that needs to be redone. The idea was a good one, although it bothered me that he had known just how to weasel the best art piece from the best room in the house. I could already picture a new set of china accented by cornflower blue napkins and bluebells identical to the painting in a trim vase as a centerpiece. I'd definitely do it. I was already making rigorous mental notes. I'll think about it. Once you see it, you'll understand why it needs to be in the sitting room. It's nothing if it isn't a conversation piece. (laughs) I laughed again, never having heard him so excited, and caught sight of the movers idling near the entrance. I'll see you in a few hours. Our movers are waiting for their pat on the head. Love you. I relieved my clutch of two crisp hundred-dollar bills and thanked the unfriendly men for doing their job, to which they only nodded and sulked away. 
Apparently, a lack of wealth also equated to a lack of manners. I immediately regretted tipping them at all, and slammed the door hard enough to shake the glass panels on either side. The painting sat propped against the wall, its dust cover and protective bubble wrap bound by expertly fastened small ropes that I discovered would not be freed with bare hands. Returning moments later with a paring knife, I slashed away the thick strands of twine and pulled them free. The waves of white sheeting unfurled around the painting without prompt and rippled at its base. The reveal uncanny. I stepped away from it, hand over my mouth, as the enormous image asserted itself over the room. It was a figure shown from the chest up. It was nearly featureless. Its eyes were gouged holes and wrinkled flesh that encircled the twinkle of eyeballs deep within the sockets. Too black to discern a white or iris. It had no mouth or nose, but instead a malformation of scar tissue that existed cavernously beneath its cord eye sockets. The flesh was either burnt or blood-soaked, its entirety ranging from deep brown to a violent crimson red, backlit with the eerie green of thermal gas or a treacherous deep-sea cavern. I reached for the sheet, nearly screaming as I touched the enormous horror with the back of my hand and cast the sheet over the deformed figure. A ringing deep in my ears silenced the second the new addition to our household was again shrouded in white. My heart beat uncontrollably, and I removed myself from the room in a clumsy jog, moving outside by instinct, and again slamming the door behind me, again rattling the glass. Once my hand stopped shaking, and I could breathe again, I realized that I'd left my keys inside. Oh, we'd kept the door locked religiously ever since a couple down the street had been robbed at gunpoint. The husband shot between the eyes and the wife raped and near dead. Franklin had suggested buying a gun, but I'd told him I'd end up killing myself by accident while trying to shoot some intruder. Those types of violent crimes are very rare in this part of the city. Rare still as security increased in our closed community. But even so, the door remained locked. This wasn't the first time one of us had been stupid enough to get locked on the porch, forced to wait for rescue. It was, however, the first time I was relieved to do so. Franklin started laughing the moment his car turned up the drive, rolling down the window so I could hear it, and pointing just to rile me up. Had this been the usual I ran outside to grab the phone from the car and locked myself out, it would have grated on my nerves enough to merit not speaking. But the palpable relief of not sharing a space with the figure in the painting was still fresh enough that my middle finger would suffice. An embarrassed smile on my lips. Franklin moved towards me with his briefcase, 
suit jacket draped over his shoulder. Really? Honey? Oh, shut up. I stood, dusting the bottom of my beige slacks, no doubt scuffed from the step, and kissed him lightly. I like you more when you just shut up. I kissed him again, hoping the affection could disarm further goading and possibly even put off a second unveiling of the piece. Is it inside? He found his key and lunged up the steps. Keeping it wrapped up was wishful thinking. Yes, but... I stammered, hesitating as he practically clawed his way inside. Franklin... He reappeared, his eyebrows raised, and his unabashed youthfulness disarmed me. I smiled. He took my hand and led me inside. We have that thing later this week, so I saw this and I thought, it's perfect! He let go of my hand and moved to the enormous covered painting. What better way to give off a first impression to Lloyd Carson and his firm? I moved behind the piano and sat at the bench. I think the house speaks for itself. I tapped a few staccato notes and glanced at the white sheet. Maybe it's for me, then. To spiff up the place. Give it some oomph. He whipped the sheet free and stepped back. The horrible figure again watching over the room. Franklin moved to the sofa and sat, turned to look over the room, and marveled with a silent shake of his head. The reaction was immediate, and I didn't recognize my own ridiculousness, until after I'd ran to the painting, hurtling the love seat in heels, and tossed the sheet over it again. I don't like it. My breathing was shallow, and Franklin watched me as I paced in front of the bookshelf on the opposite side of the room, unable to take a deep breath. He watched me with vague amusement before standing and going toward the painting. Honey... Don't! I don't like it! I moved toward him, as if I might pounce should he try to uncover it again. Please don't. Honey? Franklin? I took his elbow and tried to lead him away. You're being ridiculous. He gently removed my grip from his elbow and pulled the sheet away. He turned, urging me to speak with a soft nudge. What is that? Look at it and tell me what it is. I sighed and gazed on the figure once more. Its slick, skinless muscle and carved-out eyes and gasping mouth just as sickening as it had been before. I could imagine its breathing, and I fidgeted as it seemed to stare straight back at me. It was as though I could hear it. As if it were not an amalgamation of paint and color, but flesh and blood, boxed up forever behind a pane of glass. It looks evil evil <laughs> you smoke cigarettes in the chapel and spit into the holy water at catholic school 
Since when do you believe something is evil? I never should have told you about that. He patted the frame. I just mean the idea of a god or a devil doesn't have a place in our home. This is oil paint on canvas. It was made in 1987. Hardly a cursed relic. I said it looks evil, which exists. I didn't say anything about the devil. I felt my lips purse as my patience with the patronization bled away. I don't like the fucking painting, Franklin. It's ugly. It looks like a corpse and we aren't hanging it up. I began to walk away, my heels echoing on marble like little exclamation points, and whirled around for another final word. In fact, I don't want it in the house. Period. You changed your mind? That's not like you. Laura touched her neck the way she always has when amused. Stop! <laughs> he doesn't always get his way. Never. I gave her a look. She rolled her eyes. I'm kidding, Eve. She brought her mimosa up to her lips. Once I left the house, the whole outburst seemed silly. Overblown. I called him and told him to hang it. Just saying this caused my skin to prickle with cold sweat. I am being ridiculous, right? Is that even a question? Laura had the tendency to become annoyingly harsh with each drink, and I motioned to the server for the check. He asked if we wanted dessert. I told him I just wanted the check. Off he went. I swear you have to hold everyone's hand to get anything done anymore. Laura looked at me, amused, and slapped her black credit card on the tabletop. As opposed to, what, the good old days? People complained less. They just did their job. Now everyone thinks being famous is a fucking birthright, and everything else is just a means to that end. You certainly rested in that frame of mind, if I remember correctly. She looked tickled. Yes, but I also knew when the prospect was no longer considered cute. Just sad, and moved on. I watched Laura's expression fall as if she'd been slapped and she gave a sober nod. How was your last audition since we're on the subject? She gave the table a thin-lipped smile. I'm going to the ladies' room. I watched her carefully stumble off to powder her nose. Franklin met me outside and struggled in finding a greeting for Laura. Ah, guests? The question was odd even for him, and she looked at me, then at him. Guest. Hi, Frank. Laura hadn't seen him in over three years and still addressed him with such friendly familiarity. He hated to be called Frank. Laura, come in. Good to see you. 
We followed him into the kitchen where a tray of cake samples sat before two small plates and two forks. I looked at the spread and then at Franklin. His smile crumpled into a tight black line. He'd meant to surprise me with this and I'd spoiled it. Liliana's delivered the samples for the dinner on Saturday. He put the milk he'd retrieved earlier, the glass bottle sweating onto the counter, back into the fridge. Laura, without hesitation, sat at the counter and took one of the perfectly cut cubes of dessert, shining with red and cream-colored icing, and popped it into her mouth. This type of behavior tended to amuse me, but Franklin found it insufferable, turning away so she wouldn't catch him roll his eyes. You're having a party Saturday? Just a small catered dinner. A business event. Franklin covered the remaining pieces of cake before sweeping them off to the fridge. These are to help settle on a menu. Mmm, that one was very good. Laura licked her lips and winked at him. I will just have to take your word for it, won't I? Let me know when you're free. He went for the door, staring daggers at me. Wait a minute. Do you work with Bernard? Helengard? I remembered seeing Franklin Alred on the placard, but never assumed it was you. Franklin stopped. You know Mr. Helengard? We're together. Franklin's face fell. Ah, I see. Laura's list of men she's bedded that were old enough to be her grandfather was long. Long enough to see her become debt-free and mortgage-free with a hefty savings and two houses, one of which was in the Hamptons. She'd once confided that she hadn't touched a man under 60 years old in nearly a decade. And all of this, of course, meant it was not the first time she'd run in the same social circles as Franklin. Is he coming? On Saturday, I mean? Yes... His tone brightened, realizing that crossing her might cause unnecessary trouble. He even managed a big, toothy grin. We'll see you then, I suppose. Laura nodded dozily. Great. He smiled again and vanished upstairs. The wood so creaky it made every footfall sound like thunder. So, where is it? Laura pointed to bluebells presiding over the dining room table, its depiction of delicate cascades of fresh-cut flowers on gently ruffled cream silk. That's not it, right? Hung on the wall, the image seemed even more menacing, the figure now upright and towering over the room, commanding all attention be paid to its slick, skinless form. I mixed a drink I didn't plan to touch just to keep as far away from it the best I could. I didn't offer Laura any more alcohol, which, strangely, she didn't seem to notice. Horrible, isn't it? She did not reply, but the sound of her sniffles caused me to move closer. My first thought being that it had done something to her. The skinless man had done something. Perhaps she could hear his breathing as well. 
As I reached out to her, I caught a distinct movement in my periphery from the doorway and looked to find it empty. <coughs> I coughed, a bloom of sulfurous rot flowering under my nose, intense before it was gone completely. Did you smell that? She didn't answer and I didn't press it, assuming she'd broken wind. Are you feeling all right? Not one for showing emotions even on her worst days. It was startling to see tears running down Laura's cheeks. She's beautiful. She turned to me and wrapped me in an odd hug. I mumbled comfort into her ear, fighting the urge to struggle out of the uncharacteristic embrace. When the painting caught my eye, I gasped and freed myself of Laura's grasp. It had changed. The skinless man had gone, and in his place was the dripping, watercolor impressionist image of a barefoot woman in a lavender gown weeping. I could smell rain and feel wet grass beneath my feet as I ran to the precipice to jump out over the rocks and thundering waves. The grief too much. I could live no longer. The imagery dissipated and I let out a small scream, forgetting how to breathe, and turned away from the image. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I choked back tears, the taste of salt water on my tongue. I never forgot her. That day in Shetland, before Daniel was killed. We'd gone there on vacation. We'd gone for a picnic by the sea. I'd passed her and she'd smiled. Even though I could see something was wrong, her eyes were puffy and her makeup was a mess. I wanted to go back and ask her if she'd like to join us, if she'd like to talk. But I never did. I was breathing steady as I could, my nose running, watching Laura as she watched the painting and wiped away tears. We'd heard a few people scream, and I'd looked towards the cliffs from the beach. It was odd. I couldn't tell what it was as it fell toward the ocean. But I recognized the lavender dress just as she hit the rocks. She looked me in the eyes, her expression one of shame. It is horrible. Franklin applied eye cream in the mirror of the master bath, examining his arms and chest in the mirror, no doubt fretting over his wrinkles while there were men half his age that would die to have his physique. He was never content. He would never be content. Neither of us would. Oh, of course that bitch is fucking Bernard. I have to make a mental note to keep my eye on any partners over 112 to beware of Laura. I looked up from my book. Honey. I guess if I was a step from death, I'd let her work for my fortune too. He seemed satisfied with his reflection and snapped off the light, 
moving into the bedroom. Can't stand that woman. Stop. She's my oldest friend. Yes, well, maybe it's time for a newest friend. She hardly talks to you when she's here, which is also not very often. The less she's here, the better. She just has to be there on Saturday, by chance. I'll keep her out of your hair. He leaned over and kissed me. Mm, love you. I love you too. He burrowed under the comforter and fell silent for a moment before speaking again. What did she think? Of? The painting. Oh. I squeezed my eyes shut as the fall from the cliff played like a memory of my own. The rocks and the salt foam pink with my own blood. It made her cry. <clears throat> he groaned, satisfied. <laughs> I woke to thunder. Crash loud enough to vibrate the floorboards, and sat upright in bed, slapping at Franklin's chest reflexively. What? Jesus, Eve. It's just a little storm. Go back to sleep. He rolled over and resumed snoring immediately. Sorry. Heart pounding in my chest, I tried to ease back into my dreams. Thunder continued, low and threatening, for what seemed like hours. I rolled over to look at the clock on my nightstand, the old-fashioned face reading 5.38 a.m. I rubbed my eyes and slipped from bed and out of the room. The hallway was freezing. Odd as fall had not yet arrived, and we'd still been using the air conditioning most days. I wrapped my arms around myself and considered returning to my room for slippers. The thermostat glowed a soft lunar blue when I pressed the interface. 70 degrees. That can't be right. I turned the AC off completely. I snatched the throw blanket from the sitting area atop the stairs. Useless as the fabric was little more than a decorative veil and wrapped it around my shoulders as I descended toward the kitchen. The house, large and pleasant enough in the daytime, had a nasty habit of retaining darkness. Every corner and deep hallway seemed to actually swallow light. If a lamp were set midway between the front door and the guest bathroom, the space before and after its placement would distend into an abyssal black once the sun had set. I'd once mentioned this to Franklin, who, in typical Franklin fashion, had rolled his eyes and told me to buy more lights if it was so dark, and went about his day. When walking the halls alone in the dark, I would catch myself wishing I'd done just that. Cleared out the lighting department at Home Depot so I could see every nook and cranny. So I could see the wet figure of the skinless man following me down the stairs. 
I whirled around, cursing myself, my ridiculous thoughts, and found I was completely alone. The stairs groaned as if alive as I continued down. Their deep rumble shivered through the walls and caused the hair on my neck to stand on end. My thoughts again suggested the sound of footfalls behind me and hinted at the smell of sulfuric, infected meat before it dissipated into the smell of rain. I did not turn back to give my mind the ridiculous comfort of explaining away the preposterous visions a painting had provided. Nothing was behind me, and I would not bother. The breath was imagined. It was not breathing on my neck. In the kitchen I made tea, the kettle whistling cheerily as the mute blue of twilight began to bleed into the house through every window. Again I smelled the rain and smiled to myself as I splashed milk and sugar into the steeped and steaming mug and took a seat in the breakfast nook, book in hand. The soft, almost whispered sound of rain beyond the glass was comforting but I found it unbearably sad for reasons I had trouble understanding. I pulled back the curtains to watch the showers. I found the ground dry and the sky clear, the moon a misty impression and the even paler blue. And yet the scent of rain intensified as it met the saltiness of sea air. I heard the soft rustle of silk in the sitting room, and quiet sobs out in the shadowed contrast of the hallway. <gasps> my breath caught, the taste of sea salt in my throat. As I fell silent, my ear cocked to the source. Again a whimper from the darkness, the jittered breathing of a woman in distress, echoed from the room. I found it impossible to move from my seat, impossible to call out to Franklin and instead watch the black space between the entryway and the sitting room with my hands twisting and clutching at one another on my breast. I could see only a slice of the room across the entryway, a bolt of blue light cutting a chair in stark relief as the crying grew louder. Hello? The crying stopped. My eyes filled with tears as I found my feet, the staircase thirty feet away, and reassured myself that if I made a run for it, I could beat the intruder to my bedroom. I took a step, testing my own courage. And then another. It seemed as though the kitchen tile underfoot had collected frost, and I felt my feet go numb in the cold and then wet in the grass, the blades tickling between my toes. The sound of waves on rocks, their crash, the sobs growing louder with each step I took toward the precipice and gazed into the abyss. The floorboards in the hallway creaked underfoot and I found myself home again. A wave of nausea blurring my perception as a flash of wet lavender crossed the light from the window and moved toward me. Her weeping was muted and smothered, 
as if underwater. Her face, obscured by the darkness, could be made out only by the glitter of sunken silver eyes. As she stepped into the entryway, the figure and her cries dissipated into the blue twilight of morning. I held my mouth in my hands, my breathing getting away from me, and remained still as the first wash of orange dawn trickled through the high windows. I followed the morning sun's progress as it lowered over the darkest corners of the sitting room. The fear not gone, but lessened, and I turned toward the staircase. At the end of the long hall, just before the guest bath, stood a figure in lanky shadow. I watched as it swayed, or seemed to sway. The darkness in which it stood churned like smoke. A faint drag of ragged breath escaped from its mouth, and the familiar momentary odor of rotting meat stung my nostrils as sunlight fell upon it, and the figure was gone. I touched my lips gently with tissue paper, leaving behind an expensive red kiss, before letting it float down into the toilet bowl. My fitful nights of sleep would not be apparent to our guests, or even myself, if my reflection were the only indication. My grandma had long ago advised me that for a woman to look her best was important, and to look her best makeup was the only option. In a surprisingly old-fashioned housewife sort of way, I agreed. Sleep, water, and exercise will do wonders for the skin. But over 30, a woman with skillfully applied makeup will always look better than one without. Always. Franklin often reinforced this, whether knowing it or not. With the standard observations any blue-blooded man makes... If I forgo makeup for the Starbucks drive-thru, it's... You look tired, or... Are you feeling okay? As opposed to pinches on the ass, or rolling over each other on the kitchen table in the moment... When I look my best. In nine years of marriage, I've never slept with my husband without makeup on. And I suspect I never will. I fussed with the boat neck gown a moment longer in the mirror growing more and more weary of its rose-gold simplicity, something I had initially found very elegant. Now it seems simultaneously bland and overly dressy. I turned from my reflection, afraid I'd talk myself into embarrassment, and slipped on my wedding band and diamond necklace. I contemplated the diamond earrings in my hand, more expensive than Franklin's car, before returning them to my jewelry box. Too much sparkle and I'd be lost. I looked through the mirror, into the closet, and got sight of the little boy peering through my shirts. <gasps> I gasped, standing, and toppling my vanity chair onto its side. We watched each other, as had become the norm, and he cried quietly into his hands, eyes round with fear. The left side of his throat was a wet, gaping hole, and his skin was pale as polished stone. 
He'd arrived when Emily, our housekeeper, deep cleaned for the coming party. She'd done the sitting room last and nearly ran from the house after she'd finished. The boy was in my closet that night, and the woman cried downstairs, and the skinless man paced the hallways until morning. I'd learned not to leave my bed at night. But I see the boy hiding in the dark no matter the hour. In closets, in cupboards, behind furniture, everywhere. When I'd first seen him, after my initial shock, I'd asked him if he'd like to come out, if he needed help. To this, his round, teary eyes and whimpering lips curved into a vicious smile and he nodded. I blinked and he was again innocent, reaching shyly toward me, the same way he was doing now. I moved out of the room on stilettos, my dress swirling around my legs, and I made my way downstairs. Already the guests were beginning to arrive. Have you seen Bernard yet? Franklin whispered this as if it were a secret that his, and most of the attendees, employer was present at such a casual event. I handed him a glass of red wine. No, loosen up. He pushed the glass back at me. Teeth. So I offered the white and he smiled. Too limp-wristed, honey. Jesus Christ. Stay high-strung, then. I rolled my eyes and gave the red to a passing server. I moved into the sitting room where the painting was adored by the ever-changing group of people. Some, like me, were violently opposed to it, to the point of anger. Susanna and Christoph Rolland had come and gone already. She isn't feeling well, he'd said as he led his sobbing wife to their car. Everyone was too enraptured by the artwork to notice the departure. I allowed a glance at the painting, somehow still unable to stifle my curiosity, and found there a family tangled in the crushed remains of a minivan. Then a woman's glazed stare from the earth, dirt around her eyes and between her teeth, the distended form of an elderly woman in a dumpster, melting in the heat. A baby, blue and unmoving, beneath a sheet of ice. The image changed with each blink, and the more people approached it, the more coos and gasps it received, and the more fresh, wretched images appeared. The feelings were unfocused, unlike the despair of the woman in lavender, or the putrid anger of the skinless man, and I was unable to experience anything more than a flash of feeling, a touch, a scent, or a snapshot of memories that are not my own. The crackle of flames underfoot and screams gave way to a frigid cold and watery silence that broke away as sirens flashed over the guests and the smell of gasoline and blood tinged the room. 
Brains and black fingertips and bruises. Axes and rope. And hanging bodies. And loose limbs. And dead eyes. The smell of perfume. The clawed grip of skeletal fingers on my shoulder. You doing all right? I jerked away, sloshing wine onto the hardwood floor. Laura steadied me, an unimpressed smile on her lips. Jesus, Eve, it's only seven. They haven't even served dinner yet. I could have slapped her, but settled for jerking my shoulder away. You look better. I smiled, her dark circles and bloodshot eyes glaring on someone who had such an unskilled hand with makeup. She had always been the type who had to sleep to look her best. Otherwise, it was written all over her face in clumsy movements. Her snide smile faded. Nightmares. Well, not nightmares. Dreams. But nothing ever comes of them. They feel terrifying, but nothing happens. I rolled my eyes as she concentrated on the floorboards. We're at the beach and everyone looks up. But nothing happens. We go back to our picnics and luncheon chatter. Maybe it's a sign from God. Ladies. She mocks amazement and trades out her empty champagne flute for a fresh one. Thoroughly confounded by her dreams while I wondered after how she didn't mention the woman. Did she not jump? She eyed me suspiciously. What? The woman? In the dress? Did she not jump onto the rocks? Her face remained dull with confusion. In Scotland, Laura. The painting... I pointed toward it. We stood in silence. It's very pretty, Eve. Accents the room well. Maybe you could get a piece of lavender furniture to tie into her gown. Really make it pop. I only stared at her as she began to talk about something else. Not another word for the dead girl she had transplanted into my home. I entered the kitchen on a made-up errand, leaning against the counter to catch my breath. <sighs> Even out of eyesight, I could still feel its presence around me, in the corners and behind closed doors. I took a bottle of water from the refrigerator and drank. The fat woman was nearly invisible in the dark of the pantry. The smell of vomit and urine preceding her in an all-factory assault. Before her wet breathing drew my eyes to hers. I dropped the bottle and splattered my shoes. Her naked flesh was taut with gaseous buildup, and her fingers were a dry purple, expanding around rings some splitting to release the sticky black of spoiled blood. Her stomach was open, burst with rot, and she whispered to me in Spanish, 
her eyes rolling around of their own accord, spilling yellow tears over her cheeks. I went rigid as my legs locked and my breathing hitched. Her trembling voice sounded as if it were one in a whispering crowd of thousands, each one deeper and more distorted than the next. She was sniffling. Her milky eyes focused on me as she took a step closer. She took another step and her stench grew. I could feel the desert sun on my shoulders and hear screams and gunshots in the distance. She wept again. El coyote nos mintió. Le dije a mis hijos a correr. She reached out to me with pleading eyes. The kitchen door banged open and I shrieked. The young man in his serving uniform smiled a little, not noticing or not caring about my distress, and passed me to retrieve more wine. Are you enjoying your evening, miss? Yes, thank you. Can I get you anything? I pointed to the bottle of Riesling in his hands. A little more of that wouldn't hurt. Certainly. He immediately turned his full attention to me, setting the other bottles on the counter and uncorking the wine with expert speed. Have you... And I apologize if this question seems ridiculous, but have you seen any guests tonight that seem... strange... This drew a look of concern. In what way, ma'am? He held the glass out to me before reinserting the cork in the bottle. Never mind. Silly question anyway. I returned my eyes to the pantry. Be sure to let me know if you need anything else. Then he disappeared through the doors. I remained only a moment longer before moving back into the party. The hushed Spanish whisper shut away as I closed the door behind me. Hello, Bernard. <laughs> I greeted him perhaps a little too warmly and gave him a clumsy kiss on the cheek, which he pulled into a hug. <laughs> so glad you could make it. I could feel his warm hands on my hips. My absolute pleasure. My goodness, Franklin, your wife becomes more beautiful and charming each time we meet. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I playfully swatted his shoulder and barely stifle a belch. His arm remained around my waist as I pulled away, brought to stand awkwardly next to him. It's true. We do seem to have it all, don't we? Franklin laughed, far too loud, and agreed heartily. <laughs> yes, sir, I believe we do. What a life. 
I threw a smirk at Franklin. His eyes flickered with embarrassment and seemed to telepathically relay the message. We'll speak about this display later. Have you seen the painting Franklin brought in? Painting? He smiled, glancing over my flat cleavage, and turned to Franklin. Oh, yes. Got it special for tonight. I began to pull him along to the sitting room. You really must see it. Eve? Franklin reached out for my arm, Bernard waving his hands away. That's quite all right, my boy. I'm intrigued. <laughs> Where did he get this painting, you say? Smith's and Reiki. Hmm. Lovely pieces there from time to time. Was this piece you acquired created by any artist of note? See, that is part of what intrigued me about this piece. It isn't signed, and it isn't credited. It was part of an estate collection held by Leonard Crawford's children. I suppose they dug it out of the attic. <laughs> Had quite the bidding war for it. Nearly lost it to a nice old lady wearing Chanel. She couldn't keep up. <laughs> Leonard Crawford, you say? Yes, sir. Mm, poor man. I suppose I'll be following him into the grave soon enough, and all of my things will be sold off as well. Laura is going to clean up then. <laughs> <laughs> His responding chuckle was curt. I can't imagine leaving much for that sort of companionship. Franklin looked at me, his eyes round and vicious, and I shrugged. He spoke impatient to do away with any odd silence. Leonard's daughter, Maureen, and her husband are here tonight. The statement sounded stupid and clumsy. Bernard didn't seem to notice. I will have to give my condolences. Show me to them after... His sentence cut as his eyes fell on the painting, and he could only smile. Franklin was overjoyed. Incredible, isn't it? Bernard released my waist, and I was careful to keep my eyes away from the canvas. Extraordinary. I never thought I'd see you again. I couldn't help myself, perhaps expecting a regal image of his first wife, and instead looked into the bleary eyes of a teenaged girl who'd been beaten to death and left in the gutter. The scent of blood and trash was too much. The pain in my genitals. An old man's laughter. The reflection of neon signs filled with Thai characters in the blood and slime. I felt a shuddering breath leave my body and nearly collapsed. Excuse me. The sensations Bernard's painting brought on were pure and evil. Intentional. I led myself to the hors d'oeuvres, the wine going straight to my head, the urge to smash my face into the tabletop, to still the violence replaying over and over again in my mind was intense. The last breath of that girl felt like my own. Again... And again. And again. Pardon me. You're Eve, our hostess. 
I smiled, feeling my eyes remain sharp and being unable to help it. Yes. Did you need something? The woman, slim and blonde, and in a very revealing <laughs> cocktail dress, laughed. No, no. I wanted to thank you for the invitation. It's getting a bit late, and my husband is getting grouchy. I nodded. Lovely of you to have come. Oh, I am ridiculous. You have no idea who I am, do you? I motioned around. I'm so sorry. So many familiar faces. Don't apologize. We've never met before. She wrestled into an enormous fur coat and fussed with the cuffs absentmindedly. I'm Maureen Williams, Leonard Crawford's daughter. Oh, right. Thank you for the painting. My husband adores it. He was like a child on Christmas Day when it arrived. I was happy to give it away. Frankly, we hadn't thought it would sell at all, let alone be subject to a bidding war. You hate it, don't you? No. No, I... My mother, God rest her, hated it too. She'd been the one who insisted it remain covered and in storage. <laughs> Told father if he hung it up in her house again, she'd take it out and burn it. Uh, then, I suppose, over time we all just forgot it was there at all. Out of sight, out of mind. Why did she hate it? If you don't mind me prying. No, not at all. She leaned closer. Her perfume both lush and subtle. She thought it was haunted. <laughs> oh, ridiculous, isn't it? I laughed along nervously, my heart pounding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The voice of a gray-haired man carried over from the door. Maureen gave an apologetic wave and gave me a half-hug. Uh, I really do need to go. Thank you for such a lovely evening. Our pleasure. If any ghosties do come around, be sure to give me a call. <laughs> she winked. I waved as she disappeared through the double doors. I left the catering staff to their cleanup duties and went upstairs to remove my evening attire, the heavy diamonds rubbing the back of my neck raw, and nearly broke an ankle on the second floor landing when my stiletto caught between two floorboards. Oh, for God's sake. I slipped out of the shoe and pried it loose, a glint of silver catching my eye. In the recess of the guest bedroom drifted countless shifting lights, like fireflies, and I found myself admiring them. One of the catering van's headlights switched on outside as its engine sputtered to life, and the soft glow from the window carved out the silhouettes of twenty or thirty figures, packed into the room, all of their flickering eyes watching me as I backed away. They began to whisper. 
So many words crept into the hall that I couldn't make any of them out. The mass of figures shifted, as if one and countless hands flowered over the doorframe, pulling themselves through. Franklin! I screamed, turning to return down the stairs but finding another group of figures at the foot, led by the skinless man who now hobbled up the steps with sickening quickness, his breathing a chain of wet gasps. I turned again, intending to run into my bedroom, and found I was not in my house anymore. The halls were darkening with the silhouettes of the crowding dead, and I had nowhere to run. Cover it! For God's sake, Leonard! I was sobbing, and I could hear children screaming. All at once, it stopped. Franklin shook me again. Eve! Eve! I couldn't recognize him for a moment. The odd sensation of knowing my husband. And this was not him slowly fading until my mind shut down. Franklin, cover it. And the world went dark. I want it out. I held my head in my hands, as it felt like my brain might melt and drain from my ears. This again? You're being ridiculous. It's a painting. I don't give a shit. I don't want that thing in our house. The tears retread my cheeks, now so chafed they burned as they made their way to my chin. I thought I was crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm seeing things. What things? People. Plenty of people were here tonight, Eve. Dead people. Fucking dead people. Everywhere. I brushed my hair from my eyes. And it's that thing downstairs. It's bringing them in. His eyes, still full of anger, tinged with concern. Honey, listen to yourself. Do you hear what you're saying? It felt as though he'd slapped me, my heart thumping in my chest, and I felt my lips pull from my teeth in an ugly snarl. Why won't you do this? For me? I scoffed and stood, pacing the length of the bed turning my back to him. I supported your merger when it almost put us in the fucking poorhouse. Carrying our entire budget on my back for years. And you can't get rid of a fucking painting? For me? You're still holding on to that old gem, huh? I just don't understand why you can't do this for me. I got the painting for you. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> so it's mine? He was finally beginning to look hurt. Yes, it's yours. Good. I'm going to burn it. Don't be stupid. His face grew dark again, 
I felt my grip on my emotions loosen and took two strides toward him and slapped him across the face, hard. We stood frozen, staring at one another for a long time, uncertain where to go from there. I'm sorry. No, I am. I let the silence linger again. The crowd of dead men and women murmuring from the shadows, as if commenting in our lives. Get rid of it. Or I will. Okay. He moved off towards the sitting room, and left me alone with my ghosts. I sat with Laura at the kitchen table. I had been unable to sleep at night for the past week and asked if she would like to come over. I needed conversation. I needed to clear my head. What do you mean? I still have some blue from New Year's kicking around, I think. No, I just want to talk. And for you to not stop until I tell you to. She laughed at this and came straight over. <laughs> to my surprise, she'd appeared looking like she just rolled out of bed, adorned with sweatpants and a matching hoodie. It wasn't until she'd removed her gigantic sunglasses that I noticed her makeup was done. A mock mess. Her bed head was primped just to avoid odd bulges or large flyaways. She'd probably spent just as much time in front of a mirror this morning as she had before the party over a week ago. I found this irrationally infuriating as I watched her tamper with her coffee. How do you not have an espresso machine? She smiled to herself, as if the lack of this appliance in such a lavish kitchen rendered the entire space useless. Bernard upgraded his just last month. It's great. I can bring the old one over if you like. I don't like espresso. It was a lie. I sipped my black coffee. She rolled her eyes. Of course you don't. What does that mean? Always a contrarian. You can't like it if anyone else does. I found the observation insulting. That's not true. Taste is different for everyone. It's about taste, then? Yes. So you aren't selling Franklin's beloved painting because you hate it. It just isn't your taste. I processed this information. Selling? You're early. Franklin entered the kitchen while buttoning his shirt. Eve asked me over for tea. Isn't it lovely? Laura rose to her feet. I stood as well. You're buying it? My mouth hung open. For Bernard. It's all he talked about after we left the party. So I asked if you would be willing to sell. And I said, of course, we'd be happy to. 
Franklin looked at me, his gaze warm. Laura produced a stack of cash from her purse. Bernard insists on cash transactions between friends. Plus this way I might be able to surprise him. She held the cash out to Franklin. Laura, are you sure? I found my stomach cramping in an odd way. A sense of dread falling over me as I imagined her at the mercy of that painting. Don't be silly. He's going to love it. She placed the cash in Franklin's hand. It was as though the air was suddenly clear and the lights were brought up to full illumination. The stillness of the house was a warm blanket instead of a cold threat. A threat? I thought amused. Against what? Then fatigue caught me, like a wall of warm water, and I stood. <sighs> Sorry, I need to lay down. Franklin followed me into the sitting room with his hand on my shoulder. Are you all right? Fine. I lay down on the nearest sofa. Just need to rest. I was asleep before I could make out his reply. When I woke, the painting was gone. Later that night, I questioned Franklin. What do you mean? You got rid of it? Very funny. Laura had some men haul it out an hour ago. Why? He examined me astounded, then kissed my forehead on his way out of the room. You can find a new painting for that room. I rubbed my eyes, the sky dark outside, and stood up to stretch. I was starting to like it. I was lying, I thought. I was unable to remember what the painting had contained. Ha. Ha. The bathroom door clicked shut. The telephone pulled us both from sleep, but I remained still as Franklin answered it angry and disoriented. Huh? Uh, who's, who's this? Oh, hello, sir. I'm sorry? I listened as he spent the rest of the phone call asking for clarification and repeating, I'm sorry? I rolled over and he shrugged at me, still holding the phone to his ear. Uh, okay, sir. I, yes, I will let her know. Uh, yes, yes, I'll see you Monday. Good night. He replaced the phone in its cradle and lay back down. What was that about? Bernard. What did he want? It's three in the morning. I rubbed my eyes and sat up. Everything okay? Yeah, he seemed disoriented. He's done this before with Will and Bev. 
I guess he dials anyone and spouts nonsense before getting off the phone. Sleep talking, dream stuff, probably. He stood and stretched. Hmm. What did he dream about tonight? <sighs> it was about you, actually. Me? Yes, he said to let you know the first man is still yours. Strange. He rubbed his eyes. <sighs> My boss has the hots for you, I think. He does have more money. I lay back in bed. He laughed. I listened as Franklin's footsteps creaked on the stairs, and I closed my eyes. Maybe... <gasps> His voice came from the master bath, and I jolted up in bed. Maybe he's a... Shh! The footfalls continued on the stairs. Silence. I looked to Franklin, who stared at the closed bedroom door, eyes wide, and turned again toward a new sound. The sound of rasping breath. The squeak of the doorknob as it slowly turned. Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 